Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, we've reached the end of yet another week and I can honestly say, and I do mean this when I say it, I have not felt better about this dreaded lockdown than I do this morning. The sky's blue, the weather is crisp and there's a new outlook coming from the powers that be. It seems they have finally got the message that we've been giving them for quite some time here at Talk Radio. The message is this. We can't take much more of it, people. After the Bank of England yesterday announced that a big economic bounce back is on the cards, the government has clearly woken up and started smelling the coffee. Now there's talk of starting to make that happen, and soon. Let's get those gyms open, let's get our children back to school, and let's get people back to work. Although this new idea that I've just come up with to never allow the university to open again, I'm rather warming to. I'm sure you would agree. What would be the difference if none of the universities opened up again? Let's keep the research people working. Let's make sure the people working on things like vaccines continue to be funded. Let's make sure that all of the proper education that needs to go on happens in our schools. But let's face it, most universities are useless institutions full of people who are literally stealing a living, teaching young people about things they don't need to know and also telling them things which aren't actually true. I'm sure that there'll be plenty of people out there going, oh, listen to this bloke, he wants to shut down education. No, I just want to shut down the wokerati. I just want to shut down the ability of these universities, these places of learning, uh, these places of higher education to stop influencing the kind of people that end up running this country. Because that's how we got into this mess in the first place. Millions of people, by the way, still on furlough. That needs to end. Thousands of square feet of office space lies empty. That needs to change. Hundreds of restaurants and bars have to be able to start making money again and employing people. It's time, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, to get on with it. We'll be asking Pauline Latham, Tory MP for Mid-Derbyshire, how we can start the process. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, I'm delighted to say it's the return to the show of Professor Carol Sikora that will talk to us about the news from the WHO that the COVID pandemic has had, hey, in their words, catastrophic effect on cancer treatment in all of Europe. This will have to be fixed too in the coming weeks and months. Later on, travel guru Simon Calder joins us with an explanation of how the hotel quarantine system is going to work and which countries are now in the market for vaccine tourism. And as ever, we want to hear your stories and your tales of triumph and despair. I honestly and thoroughly believe what I'm just about to say. We can get out of this together. 0344 499 1000. Because it's Friday, of course, it's time for the Perrier Awards with Martin Maligon. Kevin O'Sullivan is here and will be launching my son's charity auction as well with Nordoff Robbins later on in this hour. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us say a very good morning, first of all, to Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire. Pauline, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, I've got to ask you, first of all, and I know you'll probably think it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek question, but what about it? Why? How about we don't bother reopening the universities and we don't have to worry about all of this claptrap that gets taught to our young people at a very high price and they end up sort of coming out and doing jobs (laughs) which are no longer of any use to man or beast? Well, I'm not quite sure that's absolutely correct, but I do agree this wokery has to stop. We've got to stop all of that and we've got to get people learning properly and learning skills that are useful to the people out in the world who are going to employ them. Because well, well, exactly right. We need the education. I, I disagree with you about not opening them up because I think you learn as much by talking to your peers, which you can't do on Zoom. You don't have no, I get that, but, 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 on on, but only Pauline, if your peers allow you to have free and open discussion. Because if you're told by your peers that you can't have certain views, which is what the Wokarati preach, then you're not actually learning anything. You're just sitting around talking in a bubble. 
Yes, but I, I don't think that's the case in all universities and all groups. So you will learn and find the peer group that suit you, that, mm. that you can get on with, that you... That there are always, in all walks of life, there are groups of people you don't want to talk to and there are groups of people you do want to talk to. And I mean, you'll I go presume, and find the ones you do. I presume that, that goes for the Tory party as well in Westminster because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're all singing from different hymn, hymn books at the moment. But I'll tell you what, there's some very interesting and what I would call encouraging noises coming out of uh, uh, of Downing Street and coming out indeed of uh, some of the backbench Tory MPs about this lockdown. And it seems to me that there is now an acceptance that it has to come to an end. You know, there's no yeah. more of this kind of talk of keeping things going for as long as we can. You know, I think there's a recognition now that we need to get the economy back we do <clears throat> we've got to get people out working normally not just on zoom i mean i'm doing this on zoom i would normally have come into a studio yes and you know it works relatively well for this sort of thing but it doesn't work for everything and i've been working from home for almost a year but except for a few weeks and I want to get back to Westminster. I want to get back because rather like universities, you learn so much by talking to your colleagues in the tea room, in the dining room, right. as well as being in the chamber and doing all your normal things. But it is a case of actually learning from what's going on around you. And I think that's really important for us all to try and get back to normal as soon as possible. Once we've got down all the four uh, tiers, uh, the groups that are vulnerable. I mean, I had mine the day before yesterday, mm. which was brilliant and very exciting. Um, and how did you feel? And, because I'm hearing from some people that they feel a bit sort of um, sort of fluey for a couple of days, but that's about it. No, I had the Pfizer jab, and I, apart from slightly bruised top of my arm mm. and slightly swollen, I would say I've had no side effects whatsoever. So. Okay. My view is everybody has a duty to go and have it because it protects all of us. Mm. It's I'm not just protecting myself. I'm protecting other people around me. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Mm. And has that made the difference, do you think, to the government's kind of pivoting around now and, and actually looking at reopening schools? I mean, there are some people who say in the scientific community, there's no reason why we need to even wait until March the 8th for that. Well, I think we could start opening schools up, particularly primary schools could be opened up properly after half term. And then we, we open up secondary schools because those children are missing so much educational time in front of a teacher. Because at the end of the day, most parents are not teachers. Most parents are parents and have their own jobs. So they need to be able to get back to their work. And I think teachers will be really pleased to get their pupils back in front of them. Well, that's right, because, I mean, we spoke to um, um, a, a school head the other day who said it's now clear that people learning on Zoom take in something like 20% of what they would otherwise be taking in in a classroom. And you're quite right to talk about the, the human aspect of, of mingling with one another, uh, albeit mm. if you have to do it under certain precautionary measures. Yeah. But there's no question in our business, particularly in the media, you know, you get more ideas talking to one another, um, you know, as things come up and you're sitting in the same office space, you know, that's when mm. ideas flourish. And that's when, you know, you, you, you take one person's suggestion and you, you mould it into something else. You don't get any of that if you're waiting no. for somebody to call you on the phone or call you on Zoom because you're not having that ongoing conversation. Exactly. And I think um, we are human beings and we need to socialise, um, albeit in a, um, a relaxed way in the pub or uh, going out for dinner or 
at work mm. and we do need that and children need it in schools they really do and they need to be able to go out and play with their friends in the playground that's a really important part of their life mm. and i think i think we've got to start freeing it up so i would say primary schools could go back straight after half term as we're past the peak and then secondary schools could go back on the 8th of march which is when all people who've had their first vaccine and that's over 70s uh, on by the 15th of march all of those will be three weeks into and and have got the more immunity mm. and i think that's why it's such an important date and we're also seeing a lot of encouraging um, statistics now as well everything seems to be on yeah. a downward uh, move on the graph you know infection rates are down i mean deaths are still relatively high but they're coming down um, yeah. and, and admissions to hospital also coming down as well i think that's a really important point the deaths it will take a while for those to come down but the most important thing is people are not going into hospital in the same numbers that they were they're not being as ill in the community as they were because the top people of the top age groups and the very vulnerable are being vaccinated and they're being taken out of the system for for catching uh, coronavirus not only that there's an awful lot of people in the country now have some immunity because they've had it so there's some immunity mm. from the general public who haven't been vaccinated yet. So by the time we've got to the 22nd of February um, and then the 8th of March, we should be able to make decisions by the 22nd of February, I would have thought, yeah. because that's another three weeks nearly. And I think that we've got to really set out a roadmap as to how we're going to do it. People will still have to be careful and it will be irritating to still wear masks and socially distance for a time. But we do have to do that. And if that's the price of getting out and about and doing what I want to do instead of what I'm allowed to do, I, I will abide by that. That's not a problem. And I think most people will do the same. And I mean, as far as um, the, 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 the sort of the reopening of things is concerned, the weather's getting better as well. I mean, I know we're expecting a lot of snow uh, over the next yes. few days, but, uh, you know, that will be different in different parts of the country. You know, but as we get through February uh, and we get into March, you know, you're going to have an awful lot of people who have either either had the vaccine and or have had the disease. Mm. And that's going to be quite a large number i mean we're already we're getting through the vaccination so fast it's fantastic the only limiting factor is the vaccines coming through the supply Mm. yeah once that ramps up we'll be able to do even more even more quickly because there are people out there prepared to come and volunteer and help and when Mm. i went two days ago the volunteers were fantastic they marshaled you through the system they talked to you so if anybody was nervous they didn't have to be because they got somebody to talk to to reassure them and they've you've got the doctors and nurses doing the jabs and it's amazing mm. and you've previously pauline been uh, quite an advocate for the pubs reopening as well you yeah. know the hospitality business particularly suffered over the yes. course of the last year and i mean i think now um, we can look properly at some of the measures that, that a lot of the pubs put in and say, well, under the circumstances of the vaccinations and the, and the infection rates and all of that and the numbers of people who have had it and who might now be immune. I mean, surely you could institute an opening of pubs, you know, all the way from from way down in, in Exeter in the West Country, all the way up to Skipton in North Yorkshire. Just open them all yeah. um, and make yeah. sure that when the when they do open, they're, they're ready to keep those measures in place. And I, I don't see why that couldn't be done in March as well. Well, I agree. Um, they've spent, some of them, 
tens of thousands of pounds making themselves COVID secure and they've not been allowed to open. Right. So they've got the measures in place. And so long as they've got those measures in place and so long as people abide by it, I think it's really important that they do, then they should be allowed to open because we can't have all these businesses going down the pan. No, exactly we've got right. To have them, we've got to have them working properly. And as I've often said to the point of uh, repetition, this is not just about those of us who like going out and socialising and having a drink. It's about a business which creates yeah. billions of pounds. I mean, we've had the Bank of England talking about uh, an economic bounce back. Well, in order for that to happen, people need to be able to spend their money somewhere and taxes yes. can be collected from that process, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not a great um, pub drinker. Um, I don't go out to pubs very often, but I will do to just to get the businesses going. Yeah. And that's what I did when we were allowed to in the summer. We went out more than we would normally do um, because I'm, I'm quite happy to sit at home a lot of the time because I'm in London and having to eat out all the time. So, But I do want to support local businesses. And I think we all, if we've got the funds, and some of us have saved money whilst we've been working from home, others obviously haven't, and they're in a much more difficult situation. But those of us that can should be supporting our local businesses once we can. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm, t and I'm hearing, I don't know whether you know anything about this, that, that Boris Johnson is about to say that when the pubs do reopen, they will take off some of those rather ridiculously confusing restrictions about having a scotch egg uh, and whether or not having a scotch egg is a substantial meal. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I understand why they did it, but it was a bit ridiculous. So, yes, I'd like to see normality returning. Yes. I mean, the other thing that a lot of people are now talking about, including those in government, is making sure that when the lockdown is lifted, we don't ever have to go back into it. Now, mm. having said that, obviously, it's difficult to predict because we don't know what the next winter will yeah. bring. But if, if that is the case, would that mean then that some of the measures were wrongly sort of put upon us, as it were? I don't know. I mean, it's very difficult to tell. And I'm not privy to the scientists and the scientists scientific advice and knowledge that they have i i think we've had to do some of the measures we're doing i don't like it any more than anybody else does but we've had to do it and i think most people have acted responsibly there have been the few that haven't and actually they should hang their heads in shame because they're the people that have spread it more than it needed to be spread but i think as we're going down now um, in infections and hospitalisation and deaths, let's open up responsibly, let's act, act responsibly and let's all work together to make sure that this doesn't come back mm. um, in the in the terms. I know the scientists think it will in the autumn, but maybe we just like we have a flu jab. I have a flu jab every year. Maybe we have a coronavirus jab every year at the same time. Yeah. We can go in, have two jabs. I'm quite happy with that. And it will then take into account the different variances that are happening and the mutations. So if they can do that light flu, because that mutates every year, yeah. they should be able to do it for this virus. And then hopefully the most vulnerable, like with flu, will um, not get it. Mm. And those that do get it who are younger bounce back much more quickly, just as they would with flu. Yeah, but I think it's also important for for government and ministers and local authorities and first ministers and, and you know, people in the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament to understand yeah. 
that the balance needs to be better if it ever does happen again. For example, I've got a tweet here uh, from uh, a listener, Jess, who says, my neighbour has a funeral tomorrow. She went to Tesco's because she desperately needed black tights and she was refused as it was deemed a non-essential item. Uh, and I mean, that's the kind of thing that drives people absolutely crazy. And there's no need yes. for that, is there? No. I mean, it's the same with birthday cards. Maybe they're not an essential item, but I mean, it was my birthday yesterday and I have some Many friends happy returns. Just, thank you. Many of my friends actually do have birthdays on the same day or roundabout now. I've run out of cards. So I, we've got a garden centre down the road, which actually I'm very critical that it's open, right. even because none of us are planting very much at the moment. But that's the only place I can get a reasonable card and they're yeah. not that good. Um, but supermarkets are Maybe you should start making your own. I mean, far be it from me to advise you. But, you know. <laughs> Maybe I should. But actually, what I'd like to do is have the time to do it. <laughs> well, true. I mean, the thing about garden centres is they sell everything now. I mean, the, the yes. garden centre that's local to me, it sells, you know, clothing, sells uh, yeah. pottery, it sells food. It sells, yeah. you know, all manner of things soaps, that you wouldn't... Soaps, yeah, perfumes. Exactly, yeah. all manner of stuff. But they didn't... It's a department store now. Yeah, I know. I, funnily enough, I went there one time, I think it was trying to get something for Halloween, and they had a whole Christmas grotto ready, right? This was yeah. in October. And yeah. I said, um, have you got any hold-up Halloween stuff? No, we don't do Halloween. I said, well, you do Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I'm going, what's going on? <laughs> but let's I talk... Know, crazy. Uh, let's yeah. talk about what we can do to pressurise the government... Um, because obviously they will still be uh, cautious, and that's what you would expect. But, you know, mm. this quarantine idea, the hotels are, are going to be uh, picking up 28,000 hotel rooms. Quite a lot of yes. people thinking that's a bit too little, too late, and a bit difficult to organise. And also, we don't think you can make the, the, the individual passengers pay the actual hotel bill. So it'll have to be picked up by the government. Well, they do in other countries. If you go to other countries, you pick up the bill. Mm. So people have to think very hard if they want to travel or not um, at the moment. Um, so I think quarantining is a good idea, but I'm not sure whether the money wouldn't be better spent asking them to get a taxi from the airport to their home, wherever, mm. would be cheaper for them. Yeah. But uh, because the numbers of passengers once they start going up we cannot afford to quarantine that number they're going to have to go home and i think maybe it would be better value for money to send people home in a taxi right. um, and ask them to quarantine and check up on them and i know the system is pretty good now on checking up on people and if they're not in the home then you know they should be and for me, that is an important thing. But that what would you do, you do about what that, you need though? to would, do? Would you find people if they if they went out? Yes, or something? I think you have to find people. I think you have to um, just check up on them even more draconianly. Uh, I don't like the thought of that, but I think if we're going to keep this virus down and stop the mutations coming, and we've got to do that. But of course, some of the people coming in will be business visitors, mm. and it's going to put them off going into a hotel for ten days. Maybe business visitors at the moment don't need to travel and need to do things like this on Zoom yes. um, rather than travelling. But the the other problem is, of course, the industry, the air, airline industry is crippled at the moment. And that's an industry we do need to get back to normal. And I am really pleased that the government has started talking about vaccine passports. Mm. Um, I mean, if I go to Africa, which I do uh, with um being on the select committee to do with international development i go regularly not that i have for a year i have to have a yellow fever certificate right. i don't mind that right. it's not an infringement on my liberty 
by having a certificate to prove that I've had yellow fever. Why would it be an infringement on your liberty to have a, a COVID vaccine certificate? And yeah. I think we're going to have to do it to be able to travel. That's fine. So that will open yes, up I suppose the airline it's a industry. Question, yeah, I, think, I suppose it's a question of whether that is, is something that people will buy into. For example, if you want to visit Greece, Greece is saying if you've got a, a COVID vaccination certificate, you can come to Greece and you won't have to quarantine. Yeah. I think that's fair enough as well. But if it yeah. sort of starts to become something that happens in, I don't know, the London transport network that you can't get on a tube unless you can show a certificate. One, I think that's unworkable. Two, um, yes. I don't yeah. think we could be going to that kind of extent. No, we can't. Um, so I don't agree with that because we've got to allow free movement. And because we're going to know that the vast majority of people, adults, will have been vaccinated and we'll know the numbers. And I, as I said before, I do think it's a responsibility on everybody who's who can have the vaccine to have it, not to protect themselves, but to protect the public to protect everybody. My vaccine, yes, will help me, but it will also help everybody else I come into contact with. So that's a really important thing to do, to take your responsibility seriously to get rid of this virus. And the only way we'll do it is by mass vaccination. Pauline, thank you very much indeed. Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire, uh, whose birthday was yesterday, uh, who's uh, saying a lot of very sensible things this morning. You might not agree with everything she says, but Pauline has always been one of those sensible Tory MPs who understands what it's like to run a business, who understands why uh, hospitality needs to be opened up again, who knows why children should go back to school even earlier than March the 8th, and I agree with her. I think there's no doubt uh, that we're on the right track now. I think there's no doubt there will still be people who have problems and difficulties and complaints about the way the government's doing it. But let's face it, they've started to listen to what we've been saying, and that can only be a good thing. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I do realise that sometimes Twitter can take on more importance in people's lives than it really ought to. But those of you who do follow me on Twitter, and it's an ever-growing number, I'm pleased to say, uh, and Facebook will know that in the last couple of weeks, something quite remarkable happened. And that is that my son, my youngest son, Christopher, who's 14, um, did a painting for his art teacher at school, uh, which he was asked to do for homework. He did a painting which looks remarkably like what you might suggest is a Van Gogh or uh, a Matisse still life. Uh, it's flowers in a vase um, and he's very, very good at it, I have to say. I mean, I know he's my son and I'm not going to just uh, go boasting on about him, but he, is, he has done some other paintings since. The problem with this particular painting was that when he submitted it to his teacher uh, as his homework, he was told that it was not original enough and therefore it would not be allowed to be submitted. Now, you know, whatever the assignment was, and I know some people have said, well, maybe you didn't do the right assignment. That's not the point. The point is, is if you're an art teacher teaching kids, you should encourage them. If they have a talent which is discernible, by all means, encourage them and say, look, that's not quite what we wanted, but here's uh, a big gold star because it's a great piece of work, which is what it is. Now, what ha then happened was the remarkable bit because I put it out on Twitter um, suggesting that the teacher might have been wrong to do it. It then got something like um, 500,000 views over the course of the weekend. I then thought as it went up and up and up, it got to 600,000, 700,000, 800,000. I said, look, if this gets to a million, we're going to auction it for charity. Uh, and so one of my good friends, Donald McLeod, uh, up in Scotland, who you hear on this show very regularly, he's associated with Lord of Robins in Scotland. And so I thought, who better? This is a great charity. It helps children uh, who have issues with communication. It helps children who are disabled. 
And it's a musical charity which has got an awful lot of very, very top-ranking and highly rated musicians involved in it. We're going to talk now to Sandra Shembury, Chief Executive of Nordoff Robbins, because today is the day that the auction for my son's painting begins. Sandra, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, listen, thanks so much. Um, your, um, your man, Simon uh, Foy, who's been working on this with us, has produced a great set of page which tells the story. Uh, the painting's there. You can buy prints. You can donate to the charity. And you can, if you wish, buy the entire uh, original painting, which we will obviously package up and send off to you. Um, tell people how that all works, Sandra. So you go to C. Graham Art, C for Christopher, Com. So cgrahamart.com and there you can bid on the auction. If you get out bid, you get a text saying you might want to think about rebidding. You can also buy a print, um, uh, lots of prints on sale there. And you can also donate to Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy there as well. So again, that's cgrahamart.com. Yes, and you've tweeted it out. We've tweeted it out here as well. We'll tweet it out on the Talk Radio um, uh, link and also it's on Facebook too. Tell us a bit about the work that you, you guys do at Nordoff Robbins because it is remarkable. It's Beautiful. So if you think about the way people have been uh, remembering the power of music through this pandemic, it's been connecting us to ourselves, to each other, literally across balconies, across the globe. So um, music therapists use music as a superpower to help people that otherwise struggle to access music. So as you mentioned, they're children with profound and multiple learning difficulties and disabilities, um, as well as um, young adults and also adults, and mental health concerns on growing massively through the pandemic as well. And what our therapists do is they literally help someone who otherwise can't make music and connect through that in a way which is very human and very deep. Um, and our therapists talk about the right to access music. So our therapists really are activists to make sure that um, everyone can do that. And we do that across the UK, as you say, Donald, massive supporter of our work up in Scotland. And we wouldn't have Scottish fundraising without him. So thanks to him. And we also work um, incredibly um, with dementia as well. So mm. Music for Dementia has been a big campaign. People have seen the power of music through that. And our therapists help mums and dads um, connect with their family in a way that they're otherwise unable to. And there are some incredible videos um, on your Twitter feed and also on your on your Facebook page as well of, of just how it works, you know, because an awful lot, I mean, I've seen, I think some of them, a few years ago, I think I actually went and worked with some people uh, back in the, in the London um, operation where you would have these children with like locked in syndrome who hadn't been able to communicate at all with anyone yeah. and who suddenly start communicating because they're somehow influenced by what they're what they're hearing musically. Well, if you think about it, the first thing we hear is music inside the womb. All we have is sound surrounding us. We have a consistent beat, a rhythm. It's inherent to who we are. So for what we find is, so there was a young girl called Patsy. Patsy um, Patsy's mum talks about the fact that her home was quiet for the first five years of her life. And um, she found out about music therapy and started bringing Patsy along to music therapy. And it took a while. It's not instantaneous. You know, it's a very long process for some uh, people. And through the music therapist, meeting Patsy where she was and trying to engage in rhythm, in sound, in and meeting her energy, slowly Patsy realised she could find a way of communicating to this music therapist and then with her mum through drums and rhythm and pianos and you know everything and then eventually she started to use her voice so she actually managed to find a way to communicate with her mum through sound which then became speech mm. so yeah it's very powerful stuff it's brilliant isn't it and the auction's running from now so if you want to go and make a bid now or if you want to just go and donate uh, you can do that now we'll point you in the right direction and also i think it's running all through the weekend sandra 
The auction's running through the weekend. Um, uh, as I said, you will get a text if someone, one of your friends outbids you, if you want to go back on there. The prints and the donate uh, function will be live for 30 days. Brilliant stuff. Sandra, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for helping to organise this for us as well. Christopher is very delighted, of course, because he quite likes the attention, apart from everything else. But um, but no, he's really, really excited. And I tell you what, he's done some other brilliant paintings. And so we're trying to get him now uh, to concentrate on, on the art that he uh, might not have been doing uh, if he was listening to some of the advice he was getting from the school. But we don't want to throw the school under the bus or anything like that. I mean, it's just one of those things that happens. But they got it wrong. Uh, we're going to try and put it right. Let's try and raise some decent money for charity at the same time and let's like make help some people uh, who really do need it there's always somebody less well off than yourself and this is a great opportunity so please do follow us on twitter uh, do follow us uh, do find my page on facebook if you can't find it uh, just text in or ring in and we'll be able to help you uh, find it but it is called c graham art c as in christopher graham art.com and that's where you go uh, and make a donation or make your bid and uh, that would be absolutely brilliant. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to Mr Simon Calder, our favourite travel guru. Simon, a very good morning to you. Uh, well, Mike, very nice to see you. Very good to hear you and indeed your um, uh, listeners in in fairly good spirits as mm. we do look forward to um, opening things up. But of course, a uh, lot of the news you've been reporting this morning is all about closing things down. And in particular, people taking people off those planes and popping them straight into the nearest budget hotel and keeping them there for 10 days. Yes. I mean, it's a very large operation they're planning, isn't it? 28,000 rooms. I don't know if that's a number which is national uh, or across England and Wales. Yep. What you, what, what's your knowledge of that? Right, that is the number in England. However, it's a made-up number, Mike. It won't be anything like that. That would be able to cope with 2,800 people coming in every day, um, and you're not going to get anything like this. What This, this isn't, Mike, about uh, medicine or science. It's about polling. Mm. It polls really well. I bet if you asked your, your lovely listeners right now, 75% of them would say, yep, close all the borders. What are we doing allowing uh, Calder and that lot to, to, to waltz straight in without any checks? Well, of course, you have got to have a negative test before you go. You've then got to have a test. Uh, you've then got to do 10 days self-isolation on arrival. And the government says, well, we're doing this because we want to keep that nasty variant out. Um, however, they first announced this officially, and this isn't counting leaks to the papers. This is actually a government minister, Dominic Raab, I think, mm. 17th of January, 5th of February. And it's not going to be happening until the 15th of February. So effectively, they're saying if you're in Brazil or South Africa or Portugal or the UAE, um, if you don't get yourself in now, you're going to be in trouble, pal. Yes. I mean, I'm still puzzled as to who all these people are. I think the last time you and I spoke, Simon, I yeah. was going, well, who are all these people coming to the country uh, from wherever yeah. it is they've been? And you were saying last time that some were still coming back from holiday. Um, others were coming in on business. But I mean, I saw, I don't know whether you saw this on the weekend, that there was a mass kind of... Uh, um, and a people's rebellion, I suppose, for want of a better word, at Heathrow, where a load of people coming back from Dubai basically jumped the uh, jumped the immigration machines, um, uh, ticket machines, barriers, uh, because it was so slow, and they just decided to take the law into their own hands, and and, and in they came on mass. Yeah, uh, it's shocking scenes, and and what of course I can't understand, and absolutely, it's really really tough for the uh, very good uh, women and men in the UK border force, but with respect. Um, 
uh, they are used to dealing with about um, 20 times the usual yeah. number of people who are coming in at the moment. Mm. And therefore, I'm surprised that, you, you know, effectively you're not met off the plane with your own UK Border Force <laughs> agent. And, um, yeah, welcome, welcome, Mr. Graham. Come in, step this way, get on this bus, go to that hotel, stay there for 10 days mm. if you wouldn't mind, sir. But seemingly the problem is not so much the number uh, as it is the process, because the process of seeing whether people have got negative tests and whether they've got paperwork that says that uh, and whether they are then able to give an address or something to where they are going. Um, clearly, that is what the holdup is, is being caused by. Well, except that I can't quite see that. What, what, why that is happening? Because you've got to have your test before the airline would even allow you on. Because mm. while you face a five hundred pound test, if you're fine, if you haven't got a, the right test, the um, uh, poor old airline's going to be fined two grand mm. as a result of that. So right. therefore, they're not going to let you on if they think there's the slightest doubt you won't be let in. Um, furthermore, uh, we're only talking here in terms of the um, uh, the, the really tight rules on those thirty three so called red list countries countries, which is Dubai and the rest of the UAE, Portugal, South Africa, Brazil, they're really the big ones. You've then got loads of other Southern African countries and uh, uh, or the rest of South America, plus plucky Panama. Mm. Um, so uh, hardly anybody coming in from there. I mean, there will be a bit of a surge now, obviously, because people being people will um, want to get around the, well, not, not, not a question of getting around it. It's simply complying with the rules as they are at the moment, as opposed to the rules as they will be from the 15th of February. Yes. Now, I don't know if you remember, but this time last Friday, you put out a great tweet about a plane load of people coming from Dubai who had to get in before one o'clock to avoid yes. quarantine. Uh, we were tracking the plane here, thanks to that, because it was one of the funniest things we'd ever seen. And uh, although it was due in supposedly at 12.40, I don't think it landed until just before one o'clock. Do you happen to know what the fate of those people was? Oh, well, yes. But I mean, the thing was that they, all, all it was, was um, you are if, if you're an airline, you're not allowed to dispatch a flight which is coming in after one o'clock. So actually, I mean, theoretically, uh, the government could have said to the air traffic controllers, oh, tell BA 104. I can't remember what flight number it was. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell, tell them um, to leg it. They've got to touch down in Paris or somewhere right. um, or Dublin. But of course they didn't. And they just those wheels hit the tarmac. But by that stage, all bets were off anyway. That lot from um, Dubai were already in for 10 days of self-isolation. And that applied not just to them, but to their households as well. Mm. Um, and, and hotel quarantine is one step up or indeed down from that. Well, that was my other question was, are you considered to be back in Blighty when the wheels literally touch down, <laughs> as they say in uh, in West Wing, you know, wheels down? Um, is that when you've touched down in Britain or do you have well, to wait until you're off the plane and well, inside yeah. the building? A very, very, very good point. Um, and um, I, I'm certainly probably along with the rest of your listeners, most regretful that you didn't pursue your legal career. Um, uh, well, you know, there, right. is, there are some people who are very pleased that I didn't do that. But there we are. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, the actual I mean, the, the, there's various different interpretations. Um, airlines, it's block time. It's the time that you uh, put on the parking brake at the arrival gate uh, for European passenger rights rules. It's the time you do that and then you get the front door open. Um, but I think for the purposes of this, yeah, it was, it was the last arrival for who knows when, how, how many um, 
weeks and mm. so they they just sort of thought okay well they, they've tried um and um and let's let let them in um but you know it hasn't been a great week for those people they've got i think three more days of um, self-isolation before they're allowed to uh, get out and about with the yes rest of us. i must confess i'm not a big fan of instagram influencers so i haven't really been checking to see whether they've been posing uh, in their sort of underwear in their luxurious flats back home in blighty um, but I dare say they're still managing to con continue their great crusade of publicity for themselves. It's work, Mike. It's like me. I, you might think he's only on holiday, <laughs> but I am actually pretending to work. Well, I must say, we were just talking the other day about your remarkable dispatch from Gibraltar, uh, which you did uh, on that Saturday when we did a show ooh, when the pubs were yes. open. Do you remember? I think it's the first yeah. time ever that we've been uh, privileged to watch somebody not only on the top of the Rock of Gibraltar, but the, the, the rock apes there as well, and also to see Africa as well as seeing, oh, yes. uh, the sort of the southern part of Spain. It was quite remarkable. Well, it is a very, very good point. And would you believe um, at the time when aviation is going through its worst crisis ever, um, yesterday we got the news that two new, new routes to Gibraltar from um, Birmingham and, wait for it, Southampton. Really? Going to Gibraltar starting on the 24th or 28th of uh, May, yeah. So you'll be able to... I was going to yeah. say, I mean, we've now got news from Greece this morning that they will start opening up their uh, holiday spots to people coming yeah. from uh, the rest of Europe if they've had the vaccination. How are they going to make that work? Ah, well, that is the absolute question that everybody is asking themselves, right? So um, you've got, th th this is, Greece is just latest um, on, on the uh, list. So I've already got Estonia. They've suddenly came out and said, um, uh, right, Mike, uh, have you had COVID in the past six months? Um, and you got a doctor's note saying that? Or have you had both your jabs? In you come, pal, no need to quarantine. Mm. Uh, Romania is doing something very similar. Uh, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia um, is saying, yeah, oh, you don't want to worry with all that um, pre-testing stuff. In you come. And now Greece saying that they're hoping to do that. Also, the Cyprus tourism minister. Because come May, uh, um, obviously, every country in the world is going to want people in because um, they need to rescue their travel industry. The trouble is the proof. And that is the really tricky thing. There is no international agreement. There's about six different digital passes. Um, anybody who's been lucky enough to have the JAP um, can actually, in this country, go if they get the NHS digital app, which isn't the same as the NHS COVID app, then they should have a record of that inoculation. But it's basically, yeah, you could screenshot that. But I mean, with the greatest respect, Mike, you could uh, screenshot somebody else's and um, it would be difficult to tell. So we have to have some kind of mm. system in place which allows you to demonstrate that you're safe, but without re revealing too much of your kind of personal data. It's a real nightmare. Well, that is a trouble, isn't it? And that's also the problem with people coming in, because I was told a story by someone the other day about a character that emerged into this country from South Africa via Paris who didn't give a proper address when they arrived here. And you would think, I mean, I, what I said was you would imagine, given what we can now do in terms of tracking people, in terms of, you know, yeah. um, you know, smartphones and all the rest of it, surely we could tell whether somebody's come from South Africa, regardless of which way they've come. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the simplest thing in the world. You open their passport. Now, it's trickier from Portugal. Everybody coming in from Portugal via Spain has to tell the truth. You won't necessarily have a stamp in your passport. But South Africa, um, all these other countries, you have got a stamp in your passport saying uh, Mike Graham left Dubai um, along with his fellow influencers on the 3rd of February. Um, and then you get to Heathrow with that. And they say, right, over this way, um, in, in the caboose, you're, you're off to... Um, uh, 
uh, uh, 10 days in chunky. Yeah, right. Well, you would think that they could do it. But of course, it's all very much easier said than done, isn't it? Because unfortunately, with all of these systems, you've got the bigger the number of people you're dealing with. And I mean, I've been told, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but that there were literally hundreds of thousands of people that went from here to Dubai when they opened up the corridor uh, yeah. towards the end of last year. I don't know whether you've heard any numbers on that, but but I mean, quite an extraordinary amount of people that went to Dubai. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, in December, Dubai was off the scale as absolutely the top destination from the UK. I think mm. something like 180,000 people went back and forth. Mm. And of course, some of them are still there and thinking, what the heck do we do now? Yes, well, exactly right. And so, I mean, as far as you understand it, um, and, and obviously this is, you know, subject to change, but they seem to be making noises in government now about lifting this lockdown. Uh, schools probably in March, possibly before that with some of them, um, certainly gyms possibly opening. I mean, at what point do you think the travel business can even start thinking about, I know you can book holidays still, and, and some people are doing that for the summer, but we can't yet really do it with any degree of, of certainty, can we? Well, look, I've just got an email. It's a sort of closed user group, um, loyal customers from a particular hotel. I won't reveal which one it is, but it says, tell you what, we're accepting bookings for leisure travel from the 8th of March. Really? Now, I need to make it absolutely clear that at the moment, you and me and everyone listening cannot go for leisure travel further than they can walk from their front door. Um, you simply can't get in the car and go to a lovely hotel. Um, and if you could, you wouldn't be able to stay there. Well, it's full so of that... people quarantining as well, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, they might be by then. Yeah. Um, so, so. Therefore, lots has to change. They, first of all, you need to be able to get in your car or get on a train and go somewhere. Then you need to be able to stay overnight. Then if you're looking at going abroad, and crikey, I am, uh, the government needs to say, actually, we're not going to make you um, quarantine for two weeks when you, forgive me, 10 days when you come back in. All these hurdles. And, and then the destination country has to say, oh, yeah, yeah. Do we want Mike? Yeah, we probably do. Yeah, he's a nice guy, despite what people say. Um, so they'll probably, um, yeah, they've got to decide as well. So you've got hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. But I absolutely predict that those will start falling at, at an incredible rate. Mm. Um, certainly sometime in March. Yes. I'm absolutely convinced I'll be able to fly to somewhere in Europe in April, it may even be the very back end of March. Yes. But at the moment, if you want to make any bookings, and frankly, who doesn't, then uh, just you know, talk to a proper human travel agent, book a proper package holiday. That way you either get the trip you wanted or you'll get your money back. Mm. Yes. Well, I, I know from, from just sort of personally looking around the place that there are certain holiday companies who are offering a full refund and or some kind of... Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a coupon or voucher or something uh, up until about July um, until, you know, so if you're booking up to July, you've still got that sort of guarantee. Beyond that, they're not seemingly doing it. Well, and also, um, the, what sort of refund is it? Because lots of these travel companies, perfectly reasonable, reasonably. I mean, if it's a package holiday, then either it goes ahead or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you get your money back. But a lot of these companies, entirely reasonably, they've had the most miserable time of saying, yep, give, give us 500 quid for your holiday if 
you then want to move it or we can't run it, then actually, uh, you know, you, you, you can roll it on. But we're keeping our money, your money in our piggy bank. And that's um, uh, that's what you've got to watch for. And that's particularly applies to UK holidays. Clearly, lots of people want to do this. If you can't do that because there's heaven forbid lockdown four, um, then you need to know what is going to happen to your cash. Uh, but for goodness sake, as you've been saying this morning, you know, we all got to have something to look forward to. What better than a holiday? And from what you're saying, Simon, it sounds as though Easter might be an option for some people then. If, in fact, regardless of what the situation is, will it mean, for example, Mitch has asked this question, uh, if you want to go to Greece, will it mean that you've had to have both jabs or just one? Uh, well, who knows? I mean, the, the, the Greece, it's not exactly a rumour. It was in the Times this morning. They are supposed to be opening up. Nobody knows. Um, and nobody, you know, some countries, um, I think Rumania, Romania is saying, frankly, Mitch, you get Sputnik V, we'll let you in. Just just show us, show us a piece of paper. Mm. Um, but other countries will be, uh, including probably Greece, are going to be more circumspect. I mean, I wouldn't be um, looking at celebrating either the Western or the Orthodox Easter in Greece right now. If I possibly can, I will. Mm. Um but for UK holidays, I mean, and, and again, I can't swear that England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland are all going to open up for Easter. But you can be pretty sure that there's increasing pressure in the travel industry domestically to open up at least you know, one or more of those countries. It may well be particularly Scotland, where they're very, very um, keen on, on keeping out outsiders. They would say Especially to protect their population. <laughs> well, that's just the <laughs> anyway. SNP, though. Um, they're, they're very keen to do that. I, I, um, but it may well be that, uh, and as I found to my um, uh, cost, cost uh, that Wales isn't necessarily going to be saying, "Come on, Simon, hop down the M4 right now, pal." I don't want you down um, there. No, absolutely no, not. Um, but, but maybe England, Northern Ireland. We shall see. I mean, last year, that all, you know, absolutely at the forefront was Northern Ireland. They were opening their tourism industry faster than anybody yeah. else. So. If I do go overseas, um, that was probably as far as I will go. Yeah, excellent. Well, please do promise that wherever you do go, Simon, that you make sure that you uh, zoom into oh. us from wherever it is, because we do enjoy your, your travels, obviously, very much. Now, finally, I'm going to uh, ask you a very selfish question, because what's the story with America? Because my mother's 97 right. uh, at the end of March. I need to go and see her. I didn't see her last year. Yeah. Um, what do you reckon the chances are? Well, I mean, and this is absolutely the most important uh, issue, Mike. I mean, uh, forget holidays in Florida or New York or mm. California, or whatever. It is the families who have been divided all this time. Yes. That's absolutely critical. Now, Joe Biden is in no hurry to open things up. Um, there's there's no, actually never been any problem for for, for you know, in terms of the UK. Yes, you'd have to quarantine if you came back in at the moment. But it's simply a matter of um, the the Americans deciding to open their frontiers to the UK once again. I don't know when that will happen, but all I can say is that if there are special kind of compassionate reasons for going, then it is possible that uh, exemptions will be made. But mm. um, I'm guessing kind of April, March, uh, April, May. I mean, the whole thing is about America, biggest, richest country in the world. Sorry, not the biggest, that's Russia, uh, richest country in the world, therefore better able to look after the people who would normally be welcoming tourists and look after the airlines who'd normally be flying them. So there's less of an imperative there than there is in, say, Greece, which is so tourism dependent. Yeah, well, to be honest, the other interesting thing for me is not so much getting into America. It's what happens when I come back here, really, because obviously I'd rather not have to quarantine. But that seems to be quite a long way off, isn't it? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I, th I think we're going to start seeing. I mean, I don't think give holiday quarantine. I, I, if it makes it to Easter, I will be uh, sorry. Hotel quarantine. I don't think it will make it beyond um, Easter. Mm. Uh, maybe one or two countries, possibly, just to make it look good. Um, but uh, quarantine from other places. Now, I think once things, you know, once we get the most vulnerable people vaccinated, um, suddenly there will be this kind of unstoppable momentum. And uh, so I think. Um, quarantine for coming back in. I mean, testing will probably carry on, and that's going to be a bit of a pain. But mm. um, uh, the sort of palaver you can put up with an awful lot more than you can uh, ten days sitting at home when your public needs you, Mike. Well, exactly right. They can't be. They, they, I can't be spared for too long because you know what it's like in this business. People forget who you are if you're not back on the air for heaven's sake after about a week. You know, this is why we don't leave. Simon, great to talk <laughs> to you. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You. Some very good news from Simon Calder. Thinks that uh, you know travel might be possible around about the end of March. Uh, very possibly in time for Easter. That doesn't mean, take it from me, that you can book an Easter holiday, but it certainly uh, I can certainly tell you that a lot of holiday companies are now saying you can book a holiday with us and we will guarantee uh, that you won't lose your money if it doesn't happen up until uh, possibly July. So, so just be aware of that. Make sure you know precisely uh, what it is that you're doing and who you're dealing with. And in some ways, holiday companies might be easier to deal with than individual airlines and individual places where they say renting you a villa or something like that. That might be best to be avoided right now. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to welcome back Professor Carol Sikora to the show. Carol, welcome back. Very nice to see you. And a, a bit late for a Happy New Year, but I'm going to throw one at you anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Now, listen, um, it looks to me as though finally, I mean, after weeks and weeks and weeks of, of sort of arguing and wrestling with consciences, wrestling with policies, talking to government ministers and trying to get them to understand that there are uh, things going on out there in the big wide world outside of the COVID debacle, um, it seems to me that there's reason to be sort of hopeful today. Very hopeful. And, you know, the, the key figure, the number of people going into hospitals every day, and it's dropped precipitously from over the last week, it's fallen right down. And that's a good omen. All the graphs are great. We're over the hump. They're mm. coming down. Yes. Now, you know, last time they were doing that was from the first wave. And I thought there would never be a second wave. I was wrong. A lot yeah. of people were wrong. Will there be another wave that will send to set us back? I don't think so. And partly because of the vaccination program and partly because we're sort of getting used to the whole concept. Sure. So my recommendation to government would be let's be bold about getting things back to normal. And the obvious thing, calling out for are the schools back for younger kids and then older children mm. and so on got to be the priority but we've got to have an aggressive stance otherwise it's it's you know people are going to go bonkers with it all exactly right and i mean i think a lot of people were really struggling in january because we went through the first lockdown in march of last year we accepted it most of us adhered to the rules that we were asked to adhere to uh, most of us did all the things that we were asked to do many people suffered financially uh, they suffered mentally they suffered uh, in other ways through through their health but the thing i say to people uh, carol about what you and i would talk about say last august and last september was that we weren't actually wrong at the time, you know, it's all very well to say, oh, well, we were wrong. Um, we was, you know, COVID deniers and all this kind of nonsense that people have been coming out with. But at the end of the day, you know, 
it, there was no evidence when the pubs reopened in July and August and September, there was no evidence whatsoever that that caused anything like a, a, a spike in infections. And so clearly the weather had something to do with it, but also the mingling didn't make it happen. Oh, and that's the clear thing. You know, I'm not an infectious disease person. I get criticised for that. I say, well, you're just a cancer guy. So what do you know about infection? But you just look at the data and no one can actually show you that these intermittent lockdowns have any significant effect on the, the way in which the virus is handled in society. The virus has its own ambition. What it wants to do is to learn to live with us. It doesn't want to kill us. Mm. It wants to be inserted in us in a way forever that we have it. And we've already had that from previous coronaviruses and common cold viruses. Um, and to a certain extent, the flu virus, it sort of lives with us mm. and we accept it. We've got to come to the same conclusion with this guy. Mm. Otherwise, uh, we're just going to go on being silly about it and yeah. locking people up in hotels, insisting on all sorts of vaccination passports and so on. Uh, you know, this is nothing. This is, you know, we've got to get a better way forward to get out of here. I think that's true. And there's also no question that on the 18th of December, when the government announced that they'd found this deadly new variant which might not be any more deadly than the previous one but was probably more transmissible i mean that did change everything and when the death rates went so high in january um and over the christmas period that was very alarming and i think for those of us who had been saying before look it's time to take advantage of of uh, of, of this situation and, and and lift bits of the lockdown so people could make money we realized that we couldn't say that at that point you know but now that we're on the downward slope again i think it's time to start banging that drum it, it is, and we're not being irresponsible. I think that's the difficulty. Mm. Uh, those that sit on the committee are being ultra cautious. They're saying, well, let's let's carry on through the summer with the lockdown. That, that's not feasible. Mm. It's not feasible economically. It's not feasible for the other thing you mentioned at the beginning, the fact that this has widespread, COVID has widespread health implications for cancer, for heart disease, for mental health, and so on, if we don't get out of it. So for health reasons alone, forget the economy, we've got to get out of this lockdown we've got to get back to normal somehow yes and, and i was going to sorry to interrupt i was going to say to be fair yeah. to you carol i mean you've said this all along through the summer you know that we have yeah. to be careful not to abandon uh, or to kind of make sure uh, or to lose the ability to treat other diseases and particularly cancer particularly cancer patients who need screening particularly cancer patients who are going through that process of being recommended to a consultant and that kind of thing I know. The WHO yesterday, yesterday was World, uh, World Cancer Day. It happens every year on the 21st, uh, for 21 years now, on the 4th of February. Yeah. And uh, they did a survey of different countries. We're not alone in having the problem. You know, people think, oh, it's just Britain that has it. It's not. Everywhere from the United States, rich countries, poor countries, all had the same problem. When you've got a lockdown in place, people are frightened to use healthcare facilities, which may not be available to them. I mean, the ability to do biopsies in Britain dropped precipitously in both lockdowns, you know, in all three lockdowns, really. You know, they, they just fell right down. And so what we've got to do is get back to normal as quickly as possible. Yes. Um, Research UK identified something like 40,000 people missing that have cancer that don't yet know it. That's a dangerous place to be because yes. it's spreading, it's going through the body, it's going to require more difficult treatments, the outlook's going to be poorer, and that's all going to come to us over the next few months. So yes. we 
get back to normal quickly. I mean, I was hearing um, a story yesterday of a, of a, a hospital that was opened in, I can't remember exactly which part of England it was, but that had been opened specifically for non-COVID-related treatment, which seems sensible to me. You know, it seems as though we do have facilities that we can use if we're worried, you know, if the medical fraternity is worried about infecting people with COVID, because hospitals, quite frankly, are the place to get it. You know, if you go to a hospital, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get it. Um have we got enough hospitals, I suppose is the question, to be able to deal sensibly with people who have other things wrong with them? We do, but and it's much better this time around because there's a lot more planning from NHS England mm. into doing this. The idea that you have green hospitals or clean hospitals, whatever you want to call them, and where everybody gets tested, the staff, the patients coming in, they get tested two or three days before they come uh, with a quick test. Then when they come along, they, they're asked to isolate for three days. Then they come into hospital. Again, all the staff are tested. We, I get tested every week uh, with a quick test and every month with a, a, a nose job. You know, I have all these things. And uh, it's reassuring to know that that's the case. And of course, once the vaccination rolls out and all staff have been vaccinated now, so we are in a much better position now than we ever were before. Mm. And as the numbers drop, the number of people with it, the chances of catching COVID drop again. So we should get back to business really quickly now. Yes, I think that's right. And as far as the way that business is going to be running in the medical industry, for example, I mean, do you think this will have changed the way the NHS now operates in in terms of the long term? It's it's been a fantastic. We've I've been on committees for the last thirty years about doing telephone clinics. This is before computers were invented, mm. Mike. So telephone clinics where we phone people up instead of making them come to the hospital for cancer follow-up and nothing happened. Over the last year, totally transformed and everybody likes it. The mm. patients like it, the staff like it. The clinic is, you can concentrate on people that need your services. The clinic may only have five or six people instead of a sort of sea of people mm. when you go. Uh, all arriving at once because they come by buses and public transport and most of them don't need to be there they need to be checked in some way that can they can be checked online by phone by skype by zoom whatever and it's just a different way of doing things and uh, we, we've learned how to do it now and that will go on forever yes. so i think there have been some benefits and it makes it much more efficient for everybody and saves time it saves the patient a lot of time uh, people were spending a whole day you know the, the journey the the prepare, preparation and so on was taking a day out of their lives completely unnecessary mm. i i used to run a prostate clinic at hammersmith hospital and uh, you know i just wondered they need a blood test they need to be asked if they the, the, obviously it's all men um some of them are a bit grumpy like me and uh, they don't want to spend hours talking but no. they do need to be checked and if they have a problem we need to sort it out for them yeah but a lot of that could be done on the phone if there is a problem they come in the next week and it, it it works really well at the moment yes and you may not wish to wait around as much either because an awful lot of the medical industry unfortunately involves an awful lot of waiting around through nobody's fault necessarily but you know if you can just do it um in a different way then that's got to be a way forward isn't it Absolutely. Sticking to appointments, making them work, not not having a clock which says the waiting time is two and a half hours and the, the clock moves further and further forward as the clinic progresses. Mm. All those things will go. 
Uh, and I think we can be much more semi-automated in how the clinics are run. We can control the time and it will make a much better experience for people with cancer. Yes. And uh, uh, allow the, uh, again, allowing us to concentrate on those who actually need some more attention rather than people that really don't need much attention. They're doing really well. I mean, if people are listening to this today or watching us, Professor, um, and they do have any, I mean, they're at the beginning of, of, of something cancer related, but they may not either know that they are or perhaps that they've had a biopsy taken and they're waiting to hear something back from that. Um, is there anything they can do to kind of make sure that they're, they're, they're seen properly? Or, I mean, is there anyone they can call? What should they do? I think the, the best person to phone is the if they're already in the hospital system, they'll have a named consultant that will be their consultant. They should just phone up the secretary of that consultant. If they, if for some reason they they were told they'd be contacted in a week's time, but they've heard nothing, phone up and don't get lost in the system. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it is under pressure, but you're important. I mean, everybody's important in this, and we, what we've got to do is get the whole thing moving back to normal. Yes. And, and have a role to play and then if you've got symptoms don't wait don't sit on them phone up the gp that's the way to do it just like the old days that one phone call will start a chain of events it may not involve going to the surgery anymore it may involve a phone call back it may involve not even that you may just have a test booked at a hospital which is fine just go along and do it maybe a scan it may be some sort of a consultation whatever just go with the flow mm. um, it's, it, it, it's, it's very much speeded up now compared to what it was. So I think we'll come out of this in the cancer world in, in, within the NHS much stronger mm. than we, before it happened. And I mean, if they've got misgivings about going to a hospital just because it is the place, yeah. as I say, that seems to be the most likely place where you're going to catch COVID, um, what, can, what can they do to kind of uh, ensure that they, that they can convince themselves that it's not going to be bad, that it's going to be safe? I mean, our hospitals... Because obviously what we, we hear lots of stories. I mean, I've, I've had friends, people that I've known for a long time, older people, people in their 80s who went into hospital for a hip operation, got COVID and sadly just passed away as a result. Uh, and we all know what happened to, to Captain Tom, you know, went into hospital yeah. with pneumonia, got COVID, uh, died. Um, so I guess I'm, I suppose what I'm asking is, is, is that if you're going to a part of the hospital that isn't treating COVID patients, can you be pretty sure that you'll be all right? You can. A, lo a lot of precaution, a lot of thoughts gone in now. If you go to any hospital, all the ones I've been in, I've been to a lot of hospitals in the last two weeks, there are careful flow structures that everything's disinfected, everything's been thought out. We're way into this pandemic. You know, at the beginning, it was all hit and miss what was happening, but now it is well thought out. And uh, I, I think that the chances of getting COVID, if you go not to the COVID wards or intensive care units, but you just go to the, uh, say, for a chest X-ray or for a CT scan or something, is very, very slight. And separate entrances often, uh, often temperature checking, all these things are in place now. Staff being checked regularly, uh, so they're not carriers of COVID and giving it to patients. So I think we're, we're in much better position now. Yes. So Nothing's coming down and getting better at delivering the rest of care. Right, indeed. And you've had the vaccine, I think, already. You've had one vaccine, I think, Carol. Um, I've, I've had one, one shot of Pfizer. And how was, was and how was that for you? Because, again, I mean, some people seem to be fine. Other people get a little bit of a sore arm. Other people say they feel a bit off, off colour for a couple of days. 
No, nothing. I was uh, like a party at eight in the morning at Hammersmith Hospital, you know, <laughs> with all the other oncology. We all got something together. There must be going down a list of people in different specialties. So all the cancer doctors pitched up and I bought them some buns and they thought I was a great guy. So <laughs> easy to please people. Well, these are these are all good things, aren't they? Because we have all been yeah. looking for some. I mean, there was a time, I think, when we all thought just before Christmas, God, are we ever going to see the end of this? Is it just going to go on and on and on and on? Um, and as you've been saying, um, there does now seem to be a, a way out. What's your view of the care home situation? Because obviously what we know is that there's still problems in care homes. There's still difficulties with infection rates and, and visitation for people as well. Um, but the large majority of people, the vast majority of people who have died as a result of COVID have been uh, much older, haven't they? I have, and you know, the average age is age 2.5, which is older than me significantly. So uh, I think the, the problem for care homes is uh, if everyone, once we get everybody vaccinated, then we're in a much better position. The staff as well, and the patients, then in another month's time, most of them have been vaccinated now. And that is really great. And, you know, I love the idea of just going on a motorbike and throwing boxes of vaccine through the door of the care home, telling them to sort it out. Mm. But obviously you can't do that. It has right. to be properly documented and side effects noticed and so on. But uh, I think, you know, the vaccination program of 10 million people, mainly of people over 70 at the moment, and start healthcare staff, has been a fantastic effort. Mm. And you know, my wife went off this morning for hers and, uh, it, you know, fabulous. So, uh, I persuaded the kids we can see the grandchildren after two weeks. Yeah. So uh, uh, once the stuff starts working, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be looking forward to seeing people um, who they just haven't exactly. seen for weeks and weeks and weeks and, and who didn't get to have the Christmas that they wanted to have and, uh, and all of that. And I mean, what about lessons learned by the medical establishment and maybe even by sage scientists? Because, you know, as much as they accuse some people of getting things wrong, I mean, they've been getting plenty wrong as well. I think this culture of fear has got to go, and that's the problem. I really don't think we need to have this culture of fear instilled in us. And the way the mutant was handled was, we've got to stamp it out. Mm. You don't stamp out mutants. You can't stamp out the virus. It's, it's not like that. It continues to evolve, whether it's from South Africa, Brazil, from Kent. It doesn't matter. There'll be other ones coming up all the time. Uh, the, the way is not to be afraid of it. Let's work out strategies that are logical, scientifically based, that move us forward and not use the whole civil liberties business to stamp down on, on people as though they're not uh, they're doing some sort of crime if they're not playing the game. Mm. Let's get people to think sensibly about how they can contribute. So no one objects to washing hands. I don't mind wearing a mask in a public place and the social distancing is fine. Um, but, you know, I think as we move forward, we've got to get out of it. We've got to start liberating. Yeah. We've got to see light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what's missing at the moment. Yes. No and, if, and if all of those things are the case, and, you know, we all do most of those things because we are asked to do them, there's no harm in then reopening businesses if you're going to be no. socially distanced. I mean, we're here in uh, News UK's building where there are plenty of socially distanced uh, measures. There's lots of screens where people sit. I mean, obviously, it would be nice if that could all disappear and you can get the building full of people again. But at the moment, that's not the case. Um, and so we, we deal with it in the same way that, you know, restaurants can do that. Pubs can do that. They can run businesses. They can employ people, which, of course, is very good for people's general mental well-being. 
Absolutely. And you know, do it in a staged way, monitoring it. Now, there's no, uh, have a, a timetable. I would say get the schools back. That's the first, get primary schools back in a week or two's time after half term and then start moving up the years. Once you've done that over a couple of weeks, you start looking at what else you can open and monitor everything. Mm. And by doing that, it, it'll be amazing. We'll get back. We can't afford for society to stay in this limbo land for, for too much longer. And I think that the sage group are wrong to say it's too early to come up with a, a program. Let's come up with a program. If something goes wrong, we can change it again. Mm. But uh, let, let's get something down so we can move out of here and everyone will benefit, including the cancer patients. Absolutely right. Um, and what's the first thing do you think you'll do when they tell you you can go abroad again? <laughs> stay at home probably <laughs> go down to uh to dorset and sit on a beach yes Long well that, that i mean that's the, like that that's the thing i mean i'm still not sure i'm quite ready to sit in an airport with a mask on for two hours before i got on a plane <laughs> for four hours to wear another mask and then you know more of that at the other end so i may wait until uh eventually my thing is is going to visit my mother uh who's in america who's going to be 97 um in uh, the end of march and so i'm hopeful uh, that maybe by April I might be able to get over there. You might just do it. It's up to the Americans, of course. They're in a bigger mess than we are. Right. That's all yeah, say. well, I mean, everybody seems to be now. I mean, the Europeans aren't in great shape, thanks to their blundering about with the vaccine programme. I know. And Portugal particularly bad, but mm. other countries are not. So I can't, we'll all come out of it roughly at the same time. That We've got into it at the same time. We'll come out of it at the same time. And uh, But the world has been changed forever. There's mm. no doubt. It's never going to go back to what it was. And whether we end up with bureaucracy about passports, vaccination, tests, PCR tests for everybody getting on a plane, who knows how it's going to end up. Well, I hope it doesn't end up with a lot of bureaucracy. No, let's and hope not. Laser airports, they're bad enough as it was in the past. But now they, you know, Heathrow was reasonable a year ago. Uh, even at peak times, they managed to deal with the queues with machines and electronics and so on. Can we get back to that, making it transit easy? Who knows? Well, let's hope so. Great to talk to you again, though. Professor Carol Sikora, uh, former head of the World Health Organization Cancer Programme, talking about how we need to get back to as much normality as possible, sensibly, um, and with due care and attention. Surely that can be done. And now that conversation is being had at the highest levels of uh, the government, Downing Street and all the rest of it. And as far as going abroad is concerned, how about this from Jack? I don't get this taste for foreign parts with all sorts of diseases and dodgy insects and reptiles. I don't know where you're thinking about. He says, never have. Give me a deck chair on Brighton Front or a pint of beer in a village pub garden, ideally overlooking a cricket match any day. What's wrong with people? Well, there's nothing wrong with people, Jack. But, you know, some people might like to go and visit the Eiffel Tower. You might want to go and see what the south of France looks like. You might even wish to see um, Cape Town in South Africa. You might want to go to Buenos Aires in Argentina and witness some of the greatest steak being cooked for you with a rather nice glass of Malbec from the local vine, uh, vine, finery, finery, winery. What am I talking about? Um, but, you know, people like traveling. There's nothing wrong with it. It broadens your horizons. And you can honestly go to lots of places that don't have horrible reptiles. Trust me. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday, it's 12.48, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. 
Well, it's been a long week, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm delighted to say that Martin Malagon is here. Hello. Very good afternoon to you. Very good afternoon to you. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that I've read the standing orders and yes. I understand them. Excellent news. So I know I know what to do. That's good. Not this to worry. This is, of course, uh, with reference to the uh, earlier um, audio that was played yes. out from the Zoom meeting in some parish council, right? Yes. I can't remember what it is now, but yeah, Jackie Weaver. She's Something like, like that, yeah. She's, uh, I don't know. It's like doing... one of those movies, isn't it? It's going to be like, you know, like Jackie Brown. Who's Jackie Brown? Jackie Brown is a movie. It's a great oh. movie. I think it's a Tarantino movie, isn't it? <laughs> you can I'm make it sure. Jackie Weaver. I'm not into Tarantino films. There's too much blood. No, I just, I'm very squeamish. No. Yeah, they are a bit um, yeah. bloody. I watched Django uh, the other day. Oh, yeah. Which is really bloody, even more bloody than most. It is, mm. yes. Anyway. Anyway, welcome. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you. To the Perry Awards. Yes. This is where we look back over the past week of the Subcult Independent so Republic cold. of Mike Graham on yes. Talk Radio and choose a favourite moment. Yes. As it's tradition, Mike, the first Perry goes to you and it's the rant of the week. Now, a couple of things to point out to you before we go to the phones. Um, Gary Scott, who's just done the uh, traffic report there. Um, I've got a message for you, Gary. When did you decide to uh, abbreviate Spaghetti Junction to Spaghetti? So... When you're talking about traffic going around Birmingham um, and the, uh, the the way that the M6 runs through it, it's Spaghetti Junction, not Spaghetti. That doesn't make any sense at all. You might have to be put on Plank of the Week for that. Well, we haven't compiled next week's list, so he may will still appear. It's a bit harsh, though, it isn't is it? It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, I got a couple of tweets afterwards <laughs> from people in Birmingham who say in oh, Birmingham yes. they call it Spaghetti. Oh, do they? Well... I'm sorry, that's also wrong. Is he from Birmingham, though? Because otherwise it's cultural appropriation, isn't it? Well, it could be. I, he doesn't sound like he is, mm. you know. But then again, Carl here, who works behind the glass, he's, he's also from Birmingham. He's and saying they he's don't not, call it that. He doesn't sound like right. he's from Birmingham. There you, so. go. there you go. Yeah, but he also says they don't call it spaghetti. So he's right, and mm. I'm right. Well, there you go. Gary Scott's wrong. Thank you very much. Thank well you, done, Gary. everyone involved. Well done. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Gurlis mm. wins a peru for the compliment of the week. Yeah, and that, you know, you'll probably be able to, to look at that. I will. First, Mrs. Cranky apparently gone missing for, right. for the last four days. I don't know whether she's in big trouble. Well, she's um, currently she's, on the television. She, at this moment yes. in time? Yes, yeah, she's doing oh, her well. daily briefing. Oh, right. Well... <laughs> That sounds like Richard in Manchester. It is Richard in Manchester. Is there any competence report required? Yes, I've skipped one. Have you? I have skipped one. Do you want to do it again? No. Let's do it again. I'll tell you what it was, though. Go on. So this was uh, Richard in Manchester. Blimey, that is embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> it's been a long week. <laughs> it's been a very long week. I yeah. want to sleep. So that was Richard in Manchester who got in touch to um, to tell us that he was very concerned about Nicola Sturgeon. Yes, and he, because she disappeared. Because he, she disappeared. Right. And as you've heard in that clip there, um, she was on the telly. She was on the TV, even as he said that. Even after he said right. she's disappeared. Yes. Because she's on the telly every day. Every day. To be fair, Nicola Sturgeon is on the telly every single day. I mean, day. she's disappeared in the same way that Harry and Meghan have disappeared. Oh, yes. And you never stop hearing from them. Absolutely not. Every mm. day on the news. Anyway, so that was a life per reward for you. Well done. Congratulations. You. Well done, me. And and now, yeah, now? we will hear Dr. Lawrence Gurley's <laughs> with a compliment of the week. Well, we know you're not sick, Mike. Yeah, very kind. That's very, very kind. It's occasionally good to hear, though. Well, yes. Because, it's a good you know, reminder, isn't it? It is. Because sometimes, you know, especially when... Because when some thought, people on social media do think I am thick. They call me thick. Yeah, but some people on social media um, are idiots. They are. That's very so, true. So, you know, hey. Thank you. Uh, another one for you, Nat, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be the way it's going to go now. She's I have gone. lost it. She's uh, gone. It's the confused presenter of the week. 
I think the SNP have got quite a lot to answer for. Uh, right now, though, uh, let us do a bit of homeschooling because it is that time. Uh, we we are. Um, oh, sorry, I'm t I'm not going to do that yet. I'm going to talk to <laughs> Nigel instead. He's in North London. Hi, Nigel. Yeah. Uh, that's the uh, pause for serious thought because you've just made a blunder. Yes, well, that was, that was the, you know, I'm, I'm going to come out here and tell the truth. That was a pause for me not telling you what was coming up. Yes. Because there was a problem with lines and, and, and Zoom links it's and stuff. It's always a challenge, though, when you don't know what's coming up. No. And, you know, there was there was a miscommunication. Yeah, okay, it was though. entirely my fault and Mark Gales a little bit as but well. Why not? But this is what makes you the great producer that you are because you're willing to hold your hands up. Unlike some producers who never who never say it's their fault. <coughs> Ricky. Um, <coughs> Ricky. Now, off to uh, Julia Hartley breakfast <laughs> for what it is, the first visual career Oh, this is exciting. Ever. Yes. This is it. So if you're watching on YouTube, you're not only going to be able to hear it, but also you're going to be able to see it. And if you're listening to us on the radio or smart speaker, uh, worry not, because you will also be able to understand what's going on without the video. But, you know, go back on YouTube and watch anyway, because it's really funny. Uh, Vaccine Minister Nadim Zahawi joined Julia yesterday morning, and he won a parry for the interruption of the week. It's not 99%, uh, it's 99% of mortality. Um, Sorry, Julia. No, <laughs> can yeah, you hear me? Yeah, we, we can hear We've just lost the camera, but do, do persevere just for a final answer. I know you have to go to another interview. Sorry, it's it's uh, BBC calling and, and they, they um, uh, made the phone vibrate and then it's all over. So, uh, but nevertheless. Imagine the power of the BBC. They can make a phone vibrate. They can. And fall over from all that distance away. And Broadcasting house. Only for £157 a year. Right. What more could you want? Do you not think with all those expenses the MPs have got that he could buy himself a little tripod for the phone? Maybe we could send him one. I've got a spare one at home. If you well, can there have you it. go. You know. Selfie stick. I sell you it to him. Selfie stick. I'll sell it to him. <laughs> uh, from... 58,000 quid for that. Well, why not? Yeah. Um, from breakfast to afternoons with Ian Collins, mm. uh, lawyer Nick Freeman made an appearance and he won a pair for the cliffhanger of the week. Who, who take them said that is now going to be stopped and I think um, they're going to shoot them themselves in the foot. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> I mean, I know Nick. Um, I've never heard yeah. him talk about shooting people before. No, no. Thank goodness Thank for that. God. I mean, um, I don't like cyclists much, but that's probably a bit harsh, even for them. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. No, don't, don't shoot any cyclists, no. please don't um and ian also wins a perrier mm. his first perrier for, for forgetting how to speak oh. uh, there's been moments that have been more challenging 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 <laughs> to him <laughs> we've all been there yeah i couldn't even say <laughs> that was on a rewound tape challenging to him i couldn't even say a winery earlier no, you couldn't. I couldn't think of the word. No. <laughs> I wanted to say vineyard and I wanted vineyard. to say winery, but I couldn't somehow. You said, you said something it. like vinery. Or something. Vinery. So we we, we I all know. got what you were saying, though, to be Jeremy fair. Jeremy Vinery. <laughs> Why not? And finally, back to you, Mike. Yes. You win a perrier for the harsh comment of the week. Good. Can you imagine sitting on a train with Sir Keir Starmer? It would be literally like having a ham sandwich without the piccadilly. There's no point to him. Absolutely no point. Very true. Bit harsh, though. I think that's a good analogy. A ham sandwich without the piccadilly. So just ham and butter. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit bland, yeah, isn't it? No, there's nothing to it. It's not forensic enough, though. It's really not. Anyway, that's all for the period awards, including my live one. Very well done. <laughs> There'll be more next week. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.